Wow, that's a great song. Thank you so much, uh, Peter and Andrea. And it really says so much about the first chapter of Ruth. I wish you could see these words later and see how apt they are and how well they they fit. And it's beautifully done. Here's another song. See if you know this one. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. A Negro spiritual written, no doubt, at a very, very difficult time for a group of people. Do you believe that? That God's got the whole world in his hands? He's in charge of the whole world, including the little bitty baby and you and me, brother, you and me, sister. He's got the whole world in his hands. Really? Whether he does or not, whether God's in control of everything or not, there sure is a lot of pain in this world. Famine, death, divorce, physical handicaps, losses of all kind, poverty, war, broken relationships. Life's hard. In fact, all of you, every single person walked in with something going on in your life this morning. Some of you a whole lot more so than others. And some of that has to do with personality. You know, two of you may have walked in with the same deal going on. And one of you, you know, may have walked in saying, well, you know, life's tough right now. And the other one's, oh, oh, it's hard, it's hard. That was me. I'm, I'm, I'm the latter. Some of you are dealing with incredible disappointment. And perhaps some of you are facing even the biggest crisis of your life. And you may feel hopeless, bordering on despair. And if you're not there now, you may well be at one point in your life. And that's exactly where we find ourselves as we come to the Word this morning. And begin our Close look at the book of Ruth. It was really introduced last week as Sean talked about how we're to read narrative literature. And this is a story that we're going to be reading these next four weeks, this book of Ruth. And it is a play, if you will, that has four acts. Now, there's a prologue and an epilogue. Prologue sort of introducing the story and epilogue telling us some of the some of the. Um, uh, reasons for the for the writing, but but four acts we're going to look at, and today is Act One. Now this story is found in the Book of Ruth, in the old it was written in the Old Testament, and it and it refers to a time some twelve hundred years before Jesus. Please know though that this is not a fictional story; it really happened, and it's in the Bible, so uh, it's an important story. It is without question a beautiful, beautiful. Love story, and it's appropriate that we begin it on Valentine's Day, although I have to tell you, there's not a lot of romance in Ruth chapter 1. Um, but it, it is a love story. We're starting it on Valentine's Day. But it's not the beauty of this story that made it worthy of being in the Old Testament. Rather, it is the beauty of God's Grace and the redemption of his people in general, the nation of Israel, and also Naomi and Ruth in particular, a desperately needy people that is on display as we watch this story unfold. We watch it, though, from a much 
better vantage point than those who witnessed it firsthand. We see it through the lens of the gospel where we know that Jesus Christ has come, lived a perfect life, died on the cross in place of us for our sins, and was resurrected that we might be redeemed and moved from a state of despair to a place of great blessing. And as Sean talked about last week, we have to always look at the Old Testament through those lenses and see the big picture that God was trying to paint. God's grace, wouldn't you agree, is seen in all of its glorious beauty when it, especially when it's juxtaposed to a life that is without God. Our story begins in this place as we find Naomi in a place of despair. Rather than read the first chapter of Ruth, we're going to go straight to prayer. You saw it portrayed last week on the screen. And, and the verses will be up here as the story unfolds. So you'll see it. But let's begin our time together with prayer. Father, we um, pause this morning to ask you to give us hearts that long for your grace, that long to see you in your word. And Father, give us hearts of understanding, even when we find ourselves like Naomi in a very difficult place. May we see the truth that you intend for us to see in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we get into Act 1, we are going to have to talk about the prologue just a little bit. The prologue, found in the first six verses, sets the stage for this play. It informs us, first of all, that that the setting of Ruth is in the time of the judges. Do you know anything about the time of the judges in the Old Testament? The time after Joshua, up until the time of King Saul, and which set the stage for King David to come along? It was a very unsettled and turbulent time. Lawlessness was going on everywhere you turn. And and the scripture tells us a couple of times in the book of Judges that every man did that which is right in his own eyes. Now, you might be thinking, I'm not exactly sure how that's different from any time in history where every man did that which is right in his own eyes. What makes it so significant in the book of Judges is that God is saying this is being done by A group of people by a people, a covenant people who belong to me. I have a covenant with these people. I've been good to them. I've redeemed them. And they are living any way they want to live. It kind of sounds like the Western church today where we just do what we please. And then we say, well, you know, eternal security, that covers it. I'm good. Once saved, always saved. So, you know, it's a problem. I got some problems, but it's not that... Big of a deal. Those of us who belong to the Lord cannot afford to do just any old thing we want to to do, to live in a way that is right in our own eyes. We live for the pleasure of our Creator, Redeemer, which in turn brings us great pleasure. And then on top of that, He receives great pleasure in our pleasure of Him. It's a cycle that is beautiful once it gets started, but most of us can never see beyond right here. We're just looking inwardly and what pleases me and what satisfies me. That's what's going to make me happy. But no, the things that make God happy 
that he tells us about in his word are the things that ultimately will make us happy in that cycle of purpose and fulfillment and even pleasure begins. Well, let's get back to the story. Elimelech was a Judean who lived in Bethlehem or in the house of bread. Now, a lot of Bible teachers make a big deal about this. They say that Elimelech took his family, he left the house of bread and went to Moab, which was the, the, the uh, despised enemy of Israel. But we don't know for sure that Elimelech's decision to take his family away from Bethlehem to Moab in a time of famine was sin in and of itself. In fact, it, we don't know about the famine either. A lot of times in the Old Testament, when you see things like famine, it's God's judgment upon the nation of Israel. It certainly was his way of getting the nation to look to him, but it could have been for judgment. But we don't know about Elimelech. He may have been saying, look, I'm just going to follow Abraham's example. You know, he went down to Egypt in a famine, took his family. He got in trouble down there, but nonetheless, Elimelech went on to Moab. Whether it was sin or not, we don't know. We don't know about his spiritual state, but one thing is for certain. He put his wife in a horrible place after he died and then his two, two sons died as well. It's difficult for us to fully embrace the place that Naomi was in as this story begins. Women needed to bear sons to take care of them in their old age. There was no social security. She couldn't go to a government office and say, look, would somebody please help me? I have a problem. It was expected that almost all women were going to be widowed at some point for a couple of reasons. One, just the general fact that women outlive men. That's always been true. But especially in that day where there was so much war. Just imagine. You, I mean, we read these stories in Scripture where 50 or 100,000 men are killed in one day. And this may be in a society that only has three or 400,000 men. Anywhere from a, a quarter to a third of all the men of the nation were wiped out in one battle, in one day. Now, that's another reason that polygamy wasn't such a bad idea in that day. Because if a woman was widowed and she had no sons to take care of her, she was in trouble, in big trouble. So it just made sense. It wasn't the best design. It wasn't God's plan. It was all a part of the sin and the consequences of sin. War is a consequence of sin. And, and so it wasn't the best plan, but it was allowed. In fact, provision is made for polygamy in the law. And we can understand going back in those ancient times why it was allowed. Well, here's Naomi. Her husband has died. She's in a foreign land. She's got two sons. Ten years later, they're gone too. Now what's she going to do? She's in big trouble. Act one of our play, of our story, begins in verse 7 when Naomi decides to go home. Troubles and trials have a way of focusing our attention, don't they? Oftentimes, they make us want to go home. Some of you would say, well, actually, my trouble is at home, so why would I want to go there? Well, let, let's think of home in a little bit broader context. Let's think of it in the context of, of our relationship with the Lord and the home, the real home that we have in a relationship with Him and especially the home that we have that's waiting for us. You remember last fall in the book of First Peter, 
we realized that we are strangers. We were told we're strangers in this land. We belong to another kingdom. And trials and troubles ought to focus our attention on that home, on that relationship that we have with God through Jesus. We belong to another kingdom with Him. You know, one of the principles that you will see repeatedly as you read through the Bible, if you do this year after year, you're going to see this, you'll start to pick it up, is that God often sent troubles to His people in the Old Testament. And His point, the point of those troubles was so that they would turn to Him. And time and again, He was grieved because they sought other resources to take care of their troubles rather than turning to Him. And He said, I sent them for this reason. And you didn't turn to me, you went off to other gods, to your own resources. Oftentimes, when God sends trouble into our lives, and and make no mistake, He does. We'll talk about this as as we go. We confuse His purposes just as Naomi did, and we think He's punishing us for some unknown or some very well-known, possibly, some very well-known sin. Whether trials are the result of specific sins that we have been committing, or the result of general of the general consequences of sin that, that have come about because of Adam's sin and the fall of man, God always wants us to turn our eyes toward Him when the hard times come. Of course He wants it when the when the easy times are here, the good times are here, but 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 face it, most of us really get serious when the trials come along. Then we start crying out to the Lord. When Naomi decided to go home, she had the Lord in mind. Her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, this is not Oprah, it may seem like Oprah, and I'm going to say it sure as the world, but thank God she's not in the text after the first chapter. But Orpah and Ruth went part of the way with her, and I'm certain that Naomi enjoyed the company. They came to a place, though, where Naomi did the responsible thing and said, ladies, It's time for you to go home. I'm going this way. You need to go that way. Then she said something that forms somewhat of a theme in this book, though as is so often the case in in Scripture, people said things that they didn't have a full understanding of what they were saying. After she told the girls, in essence, that it's better for a young woman to live with her mother than with her mother-in-law, Naomi prayed a special blessing of Hesed from Yahweh to them. May the Lord deal with kindly with you. Lord is all in capital letters. Yahweh is what she is saying. May Yahweh, may the God of Israel deal kindly with you. Show his chesed. Actually, in Hebrew, you would say chesed, chesed. It's always better when you're speaking Hebrew if you've got a head cold. But since I do, and it might not be pleasant for the first couple of rows, I'm going to back off on that and just say chesed, okay? Hesed is a Hebrew word used with regard to relationships. But unfortunately, it has no English equivalent because it is so full and rich in meaning. We sing about hesed all morning long. And we sing about it in several different forms. Love, loving kindness, faithfulness, mercy. It's it's a big word. Although it's only five letters in the transliterated version. Hesed. Now I'm going to say a good bit about Hesed because of its importance in the theme of Ruth and, and in Scripture as a whole. But if you're going to take notes on this, you're going to need to write quickly, okay? Because 
couple of screens and then we're done with that. God has said to his people is one of the primary themes of Ruth, although the word is only used three times in this book. If it's that important, then you may wonder exactly what it is. Well, it conveys the notions of covenantal loyalty, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, mercy, love, compassion. Sounds sort of like the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? Where do you think the fruit of the Spirit comes from? It comes from God. God the Spirit. And so, when you think about it, it stands to reason that in divine human relationships, or in my relationship with the Lord, has said can only go one way, from Him to me. How am I going to show these things to God? Compassion and love and mercy. My, it is really interesting how full of ourselves we are to think that we've got so much to offer God. And people do, don't they? Well, all of us do at times. But we got nothing that the perfect, righteous, transcendent creator of the universe needs from us. What do we need from him? Everything. Everything. You're going to see all of these themes in Ruth as God pours out his loving kindness and mercy to Israel as a whole. And to Naomi and Ruth in particular, Sean mentioned last week that God has not mentioned that often as interacting with his people in Ruth. But same thing in the book of Esther. Some people said Esther doesn't belong there because God's name is not even. Look, you see his hand, his providential hand in those two books as clearly as you do as any two in all of Scripture, we're going to see his said to us, to, to Ruth, to Naomi and to Ruth, and then transferred to us over and over and over. You know, since I cannot return said to the Lord, the best way for me to show appreciation for what he has done for me is to do it to others. And that's what you will see. In fact, you see it in verse 8 where... Naomi says, may the Lord show his great loving kindness to you just as you have shown it to me. Hesed may start in the heart, but it doesn't stay there. It results in an action. If good intentions counted, just think of what good shape we'd be in. Most of us. What good standing we'd be in. With the Lord and with all everybody around us. Most of us would be far, far greater philanthropists and benefactors than we are now. If intentions Count it. A lot of us have the desire to help someone in need, but only those who follow through with an action are extending hesed to someone else. Hesed is, by definition, performed by a person of strength on the behalf of a person who is needy. That's why it always has to be God toward us, not us toward him in our relationship with him. There's almost no one here, though, that does not know someone that you could extend this kind of kindness to. Someone who is weaker than you. Someone who is in need. You know, one of the reasons that, but when you think about it, a lot of us don't want help. A lot of us are needier than the people around us sometimes. But but if they extend to us a hand of, of, of help, what do we do? Slap it away and say, I don't need your help. 
We don't like to think of ourselves as needy until we come to the point where we can think nothing else. Where we recognize our need is so great that we are willing to receive it from someone else. Hased is more than giving a homeless person a dollar. It's more like providing living space for someone or giving someone a job or paying off a significant debt for someone else. Hased always indicates an act of extraordinary kindness or generosity. So now you know a little bit about this Hebrew word chesed that is so important. Sean threatened to use a chesed, she said, joke last week, but then he, he didn't. I, I thought he should, so I, I wanted to go ahead. And, but I need to credit him for that. You know, as we go through the book of Ruth, let's look for evidences of God's chesed to his people. And the ways that individuals extend chesed to one another. Picking up back where we left off in Act 1 of God's beautiful grace in Ruth. Naomi is praying a blessing of Hesed to Ruth and Orpah in the same manner that they have extended this loving kindness to her after the death of their husbands. No doubt, Ruth and Orpah looked after Naomi in the light of her difficult circumstances. I mean, she was a foreigner in this land. She was a bit older. They were younger. They had more energy. And so they helped her as much as they could. You know, it's pretty evident that Naomi had a close relationship with her daughters-in-law. It's not always that case uh, in our relationship with our in-laws or outlaws. You know, we t- start talking about outlaws. But what a beautiful blessing it is when you have a great relationship with a daughter-in-law, a son-in-law, mother, father-in-law, brother or sister-in-law. Isn't that a wonderful thing when you've got that kind of That's the relationship... That was here. And I know it wasn't easy. It couldn't have been easy for Naomi to say, Now girls, it's time for you to go back. That would mean that she would go to Bethlehem utterly alone. But for Ruth and Orpah to come to Bethlehem meant that she was consigning them or they were consigning themselves to die in his widows in a foreign land. What Bethlehemite, what what Israelite would marry a Moabite woman? Their children are not even supposed to be considered pure enough to be in the congregation or in the community life until ten generations from now. Which is going to be interesting as we go along and we think about the fact that Ruth was the great-great-grandmother of King David. Unbelievable stuff that we're reading here. But I can tell you this. It, prospects were not good for Ruth and Orpah if, if they went. And so Naomi says, no, no, don't come with me. The girls protested, but out of love for Naomi. But Naomi laid the case out very plainly for them. The only hope you have of marrying would be for me to have more sons. And that ain't happening. Not only am I not married... I, she, she didn't say I'm too old to bear children. She said I'm too old to be married. I didn't know you got that old. <laughs> well, apparently Naomi thought she was. And she said, it's just not going to happen. Nobody. Well, you think about all the issues, the cultural issues. If somebody marries me, then they have to take care of me. And inheritance issues come, in, come into play. 
Furthermore, though, Naomi said, you just don't want to get mixed up with me. The Lord is punishing me. And my life is bitter. Bitter. It is exceedingly bitter. Now, I don't know if Naomi was just feeling sorry for herself or she was just describing life as she saw it. I mean, it must have grieved her to refuse to let her daughters-in-law come with her. She obviously loved them very much and to send them back meant that she would have to face the people of Bethlehem all by herself. And who who knows what they're going to think. I mean, don't you know that when they left town many, many, many years ago to go to the spies Moab, that they raised eyebrows and loosened wagging tongues. So what kind of reception is she going to face when she goes back? Maybe they're just going to mock her. Well, if it's not Little Miss International Traveler, come home to Bethlehem. Happen, gal. God judge you over there. Should have never left the house of bread to begin with. Who knows? No wonder she saw life as very bitter. I would imagine some of you feel that way. Life is is bitter. You may be, in fact, quite concerned that the hand of the Lord is intentionally against you. Again, maybe it's some sin that you're struggling with or maybe it's just something you don't even know about. It's a sin that you've committed and you don't even know about, but he's against you. May I remind you that if you have repented of sins in your life, then the Lord forgives you. He promises to give you, forgive you, confess your sin, to agree with God about your sin. Even if you're struggling with it and you find yourself doing it over and over, and I'm not trying to give you permission to do that. You need to get somebody to help you get past these addictions that you have. You can't do it on your own. You think you, me and God can do it. Nope. Because you got it backwards. It ain't me and God. It ain't that. Use good grammar, right? God and me. God and I can do anything. No, you can't. It's obvious you need the help of some people around you to help put life into perspective and, and to help you get on with God's design for your life. So I'm not giving you excuse to sin, but if you repent of your sin, if you ask God for forgiveness and repent, He will forgive you over and over and over, just like He told us to forgive one another when confession is made. So it's not that in your life. Now, it could be that God is getting your attention over something that you've done, but it's not necessarily so. And if you've done the best to the best of your understanding, confess sin, then it is not that his hand is against you in that way. If you belong to Jesus. Your troubles do, though, find their origin at the throne of God. Remember, he uses hard times to draw us to himself. You know, most likely we were given a choice to go through a tragedy and in the end be drawn closer to God or to avoid the tragedy and just kind of go along la, la, la like we do in our relationship with the Lord. Almost all of us would say, you know, I'll think I'll take my chances on the la, la, la. Maybe I'll do better. Maybe I'll draw closer to God. Maybe I'll have devotions more frequently. And maybe I just don't want 
to have to deal with loss in my life. Often, though, how many times do we say after we've gone through a tough time, you know, I would never have chosen that, but I'm so grateful for the result that God has drawn me closer to himself. In fact, some people say, you know, I am so glad God did this in my life. And many times when we look back, we realize that it wasn't that God was punishing us, but that he was extending chesed to us. And it's all part of a much, much larger picture. Our problem is in the beginning that we are in act one. And we have no idea how this drama of our life is going to play out. That's the way life is. And some of you find yourselves in act one of a particular drama that is currently getting top billing on the stage of your life. You know, I'm certain that one of the lessons God wants us to take from our reading of Ruth is that his way is always better than our way. If you know Jesus, you're most likely... Even if you know Jesus, you're most likely tempted to say at times, if I were God, I wouldn't do it this way. Well, it's a good thing we're not God, wouldn't you say? How many times do we look back and say, thank you, Lord, that I didn't have my way. Naomi's story, which reflects our own stories in different seasons of life, teaches a principle about the gospel, God's good news. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But but let me just talk about the gospel for a minute. Most of us, when we think about the gospel, we think about the story of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, his perfect life, death as payment for our sins on the cross, then his resurrection and our relationship with him. When we think of the gospel, we think about going down the Roman road or whipping out the four spiritual laws and telling someone how to accept Jesus and Lord as Savior. And indeed, that is the gospel. But it's not all of the gospel. It's a very small portion of it. In fact, all of Scripture is the gospel. All of the Scripture is telling the story over and over and over of God's creation, of sin, how sin came and destroyed life how judgment comes as a result of it, but then there is redemption. It's pointing, all of Scripture is pointing to the big picture story of Jesus, especially to the cross of Jesus. It's where all of Scripture is pointing. So is the gospel in Ruth? Absolutely it's in Ruth. Now, granted, since the time of Jesus, since Jesus died, rose, went back to heaven, you can't look at Ruth and say, oh, I, accept, I see the truth in this particular story that God is always looking out for us, even when we think he's not, and I'm just going to trust him, and then that's enough to make you right with God. You absolutely have to know Jesus in order to know God. It's one of the things we'll be talking about. As soon as we finish this series on Ruth, we're going to go into a series about the gospel. And one, something that you will hear over and over and over is this. If Jesus is not a prominent part of your testimony, you don't belong to God. You know, it's one thing to talk about God, but if you don't know, if you don't talk about Jesus, then you don't know God. It's easy to talk about God. It's a lot more difficult to talk about Jesus. Because that name in and of itself is very divisive. People think you're so exclusive because they know somewhere back there they understand that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So, in essence, they're thinking, 
So what? If I don't know Jesus, I'm going to hell? Is that what you're trying to say? The answer to that, sadly, is yes. Yes. So what's happening in Ruth is that God is pointing us to a much bigger picture. A story that's going to happen in the future that's going to allow him to pour out his chesed on us in ways that we never imagined possible. So, the book of Ruth points to Jesus in a big way. The gospel, the good news is in Ruth, just as it is in all of Scripture. And here's the gospel principle I was going to tell you about a few minutes ago. This gospel principle that we find in Ruth. The good news of the gospel always begins with the bad news of sin and judgment. Maybe that's why so many people reject the the gospel. They can't get past the bad news to get to the good news. They don't want to contemplate and accept that they are, as all of us are, standing squarely in the line of God's righteous judgment. And that they desperately need a Savior, a Rescuer, a Redeemer to deliver them from that judgment. On the backside of a relationship with Jesus, we find it easy to tell someone, just listen, just give up your pride and, 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 and humble yourself before the Lord. Oh, it is, you need Him and it is so wonderful to be rightly related to Jesus. It's easy for us to see how others ought to give up their pride, but The story of our lives, pride finds itself making its way to the front all the time. And it's not so easy for those of us, even those of us who have trusted Jesus, to give up our pride. You see, the pattern of bad news, good news repeats itself all through our lives. Because it's the gospel story being played out over and over again, not only in Scripture... But in our lives, you know, there's evidence that not only was Naomi a believer, there's evidence that she lived a life that radiated her relationship with Yahweh. Well, maybe Old Testament, it'd be better to say reflected. For us, we need to radiate Jesus. He needs to come through us. In the Old Testament, they reflected the life of Yahweh in their own lives and the goodness of Yahweh. What else would inspire Ruth to go with her in spite of everything that was facing her? Orpah turned back, but Ruth clung to Naomi. Orpah's decision meant that she would not worship Yahweh, but that she would return to her own gods. Naomi urged Ruth to do the same, but Ruth had observed Naomi's life, and she said, I'm not going back. You've got something that I don't have, and I want it. I'm going with you. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord, may Yahweh do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me. From you, Such beautiful words of loyalty and devotion were inspired, no doubt, by Naomi's life. You ever had someone that inspired you that much? You ever known someone 
you know you're just around this person and you want to be more like Jesus. Anybody ever said that about you? The great thing about Ruth's pledge was that it was a pledge not just to Naomi. It was especially a pledge to Yahweh. Ruth's oath, Ruth's oath, in fact, as we have already said, was sworn in the name of Yahweh. Well, Naomi finally gave up and the two ladies made it to Bethlehem, which was no small feat in that lawless day. Maybe they were a part of caravan. Maybe God protected them as they traveled alone. But either way, they made it to Bethlehem and they were immediately the talk of the town. Naomi was wondering if the people would even remember her. They remembered her all right, but they didn't recognize her because of all the tough stuff that had happened to her. They said, is this Naomi? Really? I'm sure you can identify. You know, somebody says, are you all right? And you say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just not myself. I, you know, I got all this stuff going up. My mind is in other places. I'm, I'm just not myself these days. That's where Naomi was. And she didn't mind letting the people know, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara, Mara, bitter. My life is bitter. God has found me worthy of his judgment. And the only thing I can say is bitter. Naomi, Naomi made the mistake that so many of us make. She saw part of a picture and she thought she knew everything. In fact, if she, she, she very well may have thought, if, if this picture of my life is so prominent, which it is, then life will never be good again. I'm done. It's over. You know, Naomi may have felt that way, but it seems that even in that state, we could point to her and say that she was living a gospel-centered life. Jeremiah, we sang about great is thy faithfulness this morning. Think about it. Jeremiah stood in, in Jerusalem as the Babylonians were coming. Maybe it was written afterwards, but I always picture Jeremiah writing the book of Lamentations as, as the men were riding on the horses and decapitating people, jumping off, ripping up pregnant women and killing the, the babies and setting everything on fire and just devastation, horrible devastation in, the, in, in Jerusalem. And he says, your mercies, O Lord, are new every morning. If it had not been for your mercy, we would have been utterly destroyed. Great is your faithfulness. And Jeremiah said, look at me and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow. And yet, even in the middle of it, he gave honor to the Lord. Just as Naomi somehow did. There was certainly enough of God in her story to attract Ruth to abandon everything. And come to Bethlehem. And worship Yahweh. What a challenge for us. When life is bad. There are going to be times that we complain. And some of us are going to complain bitterly. But don't abandon your walk with and your trust in Jesus. That that seems contradictory that you can live a gospel-centered life in the midst of pain that you are so aware of and complaining about. But somehow it's not. Make sure that you remember that the good news of the gospel always starts with bad news and since our lives are living out the gospel story, that's going to happen over and over and again. Things are going to be great for a while, but then the bad things are going to come. It's just that cycle. 
creation, sin, judgment, redemption. Now, it only happens once as far as our relationship with the Lord. But this story plays out over and over and over. But when the bad things happen, they're only part of the picture. That's where Act 1 ends, with an indication that we're only seeing a part of the picture. Verse 22, So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. At the beginning of better times. Something good is coming. The narrator knew where this story was going, even though Naomi didn't. Even though Ruth didn't know, the narrator knew where the story was going. And the, and the great narrator of your story knows where your life is heading to. You just see a little part. But his has said, even now, is being poured out on you. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are so often like Naomi. And we look at where we are in life and and we just find ourselves almost at a point of despair and think that it can never be good again. But Lord, (laughs) Jesus says no to that. And when we move into the New Testament, we recognize that we can find even great joy in suffering. Not that we seek it out, but when it comes, we, we rejoice because... We are drawn closer in the fellowship with the one who suffered so greatly for us, Jesus. So, Lord, give us hearts that do trust you, even in the midst of pain. And give us lives, Lord, that that are especially radiant during times of trials that others may say, your God's going to be my God. He will be Yahweh, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, help us to trust you no matter what.